So my uh, plan is to wrap up Exodus in the new the next two weeks. And I, I know that we are only halfway through the book of Exodus, but as I was reading through it, I was trying to figure out how I was I going to preach a sermon on the multiple chapters about Aaron's priestly robes. And I just decided this, this isn't going to work for me. Um, and so while there are some interesting tidbits that it means we're going to skip over in the book of Exodus, like God's non-violent plan to remove the people from the land of Canaan that could have avoided all of this apparent genocide in the book of Joshua, Instead, we're going to just focus on the two big themes that come out at the second half of the book of Exodus. We want to talk about the law this week, and then next week we're going to talk about the tabernacle, and what does that mean, and why does God spend so much time telling them how to build a tent, and what does that have to do with us? So we will um, we'll look at those sort of big themes that come out of Exodus. This week, the law. What does that mean for us? How are we as Christians supposed to relate to these books of the law? What do we do with it? Do we... Or, as you know, some of you might be reading through these books right now, you're like, do I ever have to read these books again? Like, if I've read them once, that's probably sufficient. Do I ever need to go back to Leviticus and suffer again? Um, Exodus 20 is kind of where we want to start, and it contains maybe some of the, the best and most well-known uh, scripture verses in the entire Bible. It's the first ten words, or the ten commandments. We read Exodus 20, it says, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is where we begin, and notice again, I've said this before, but I'll keep reminding you, important that the, the laws are not followed as a condition of salvation. Do this and you will be saved. Rather, all of the laws in the Hebrew Bible are come as a response of God's act of salvation. First, God calls Israel his family. First, they are his children. Then God saves them. Then God gives these commands and laws. And so then the law for the Israelites was not a salvation by works, as is often been thought of as Christians, but the law was the thing that would help them maintain their connection with God. Because God has saved them. God has called them family. God now says, this is how you can connect with me. This is, this is the way that you will know me and hear my voice and, and follow me, and this will help you. And so Pete Entz puts it this way, the law in Leviticus is not a condition of salvation. Do this and you'll be saved. It is a response to God's act of salvation. Not useless things to do so that you might go to heaven when you die, but things that help us maintain our connection between ourselves and God. This is the purpose of the law. And so right from Abraham until now, we see that this pattern is always the same. God saves, he calls, and then he helps guide people into ways that will connect with him. Now something that I find very interesting, and if you uh, take a few Red Bulls and you're up for a challenge and you want to plow through the law, is that as you sit down and you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you find that embedded in the law are these little stories and narratives around the story of Israel. The, the presentation of the law in Israel has these stories. This is very different than other ancient Near Eastern texts. When the, the other ancient Near Eastern texts of laws, they just give you a book of laws. But the Israelite story has these little stories that are embedded into it. So, so imagine with me the iTunes contract that you have all signed and never read. That is very similar to your ancient Near Eastern set of laws. Here's the terms and agreements 
and you just sign it, and you say you'll do it. The Bible, however, is like your iTunes contract, but then woven into it is the overarching story of Israel's rise from the people of Abraham to the monarchy of David and Solomon. So it's as if your terms and conditions were downloaded, but embedded into them was the story of your life. And, and it has descriptions that tell of the days leading up to your purchase of the new Taylor Swift album. There's a, an analysis of, of how you acquired this taste for an angsty country girl turned pop superstar. It's all woven into this contract, this story. It, it's there embedded in the text. Or maybe for those of you who are married, you could think of the marriage contract that you signed, the vows that you made, the covenant that you made, and you said, I promise, you know, I'm committed to you. I will have no others in our relationship. We'll you know, stick together through sickness and in health for richer, poorer, probably poorer. Um, and, and, we, and we go through all of this, and you write down that contract, but filled in around the contract is the story of how you met, the date that you went on that went really badly, that it nearly, you nearly broke up after, uh, the story of walking together. And all of that is found in the law of Israel. So we don't just have the law, we have law and story. And so we shouldn't be surprised, I think, that we find that the law itself is actually very culturally bound. It is found in the, it is embedded in the time and the place that the people received this law. Actually, some of the laws of Israel aren't even original. Most of them aren't even original. Many of them are found from an ancient Babylonian text which, interestingly, is carved into stone, sounds familiar perhaps to you, called the Hammur oh, man. Hammurabi. Yeah, look over at my Old Testament prof. Yeah, okay, the Hammurabi, which is a Babylonian legal text, and, and it, it contains almost word for word uh, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth model of justice that we read in the Old Testament. And so there are many other laws that are very similar or exactly the same. And so it's, it's, it's not even original. It's, it's embedded within the culture of the people. I want to read a little bit from Exodus 20 and these famous Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice something about the law. Starting in verse 3. You must have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol for yourself. No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I am the Lord your God and I am passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Pretty sure it says in Deuteronomy that God doesn't do that. Just a side note. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all of your tasks, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath for to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or your daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Six days but he rested on the seventh. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honor your father and mother so that your life will be long in the fertile land. Lost my spot. That the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire, desire, desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire to try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And so we read these laws, these Ten Commandments. On one hand, they're very simple. You can read them and you can instinctively understand the basic call of these commands. Easy. Anybody can do this. Do not kill. Honor your father and mother. Simple. However, it, it doesn't take much to just scratch on them and realize a little bit that there are actually some things that are pretty unclear about these basic commandments. How, how are we supposed to actually live these out? For example, what exactly does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? How do, I know, how do I know if I am keeping it or not? Are, what does it mean to honor your parents? Are these laws ironclad always and forever? Or can you steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving family? Can you shoot someone who's invading your home? Can you lie to your neighbor if your neighbor is a Nazi and you are hiding Jews in your attic? Can you disobey your parents if they're telling you not to go to church? I remember dealing with that one as a youth pastor. My parents don't want me to come to church, but what should I do? It says to honor my parents, but... Okay. So Pete Entz was on to something. He writes, commands from God are meant to be kept. But the fact that they don't come with a frequently asked questions means that we are left more or less on our own to figure out how exactly to obey God. And now we know why Judaism has had its own share of debates over how to keep the Torah. That tradition in Ju Judaism is called halakha. It comes from the Hebrew verb to walk. It means the way of behaving. I love that image, this idea of the walk, the way of behaving. We are supposed to keep the law, but how do we keep the law? What is the way that we are supposed to walk, the way of behaving for us as Christians? Even here in the Ten Commandments, the law is a little bit ambiguous. But it gets worse when you go farther into the laws. There are laws that contradict with other laws. There are laws that we would never endorse today. Thing, things like the fact that slavery is clearly endorsed by the law. It's expected. It's normalized. Or there's a whole moral problem that comes in Exodus 22 where if a virgin daughter is raped, the rapist must pay the bride price to the father and marry her. Or just pay the bride price if it's really big and they aren't going to get married. There's this whole weird daughters are property, women are less than, they're just property as well. And we would never support that. We would never say that a woman just belongs to her husband or father. We would never force someone into the abuse of marrying their rapist. There's a very strange, messy piece. Some have sought to explain the law like this. There's moral law, ceremonial law, and cultural law. Ceremonial and cultural laws we are not supposed to obey. Moral laws are the ones that are timeless forever that we extract out of this ancient story. It's a false dichotomy. 
the law itself doesn't do that. Jews were never told, just obey this part forever and not this part one day. It, it's, it's a misreading of the text. All of the law, it's a, it's a complete package. It comes all together or not at all. So then why is the law there? What's the purpose? What are we supposed to do? One of the things I think that we need to be clear about, and this is a little, maybe, uh, is that our theology never rests on a Bible verse. We don't just pull a text and say, well, this is the reason why, and this is the reason why. It's not how we build our theology, our ethics, or our morality, because you can always find the verse to support what you want. The Bible has been used as a weapon to sanction slavery, the abuse of women, to commit genocide, to steal land, to remove children from their homes. Preachers used the scripture to justify the lynching of black Americans, and, the, and they, they even taught from the Bible that to, uh, to rape a black woman wasn't a sexual sin because black women weren't even fully human. And so you can make the text say whatever you want. You can extract the text you can find verses that support polygamy and war, and we would be wise to recognize that the point isn't what the Bible literally says, because the Bible says a lot of things that we should never do. The role as a Christian has always been to discern the connection between the ancient times and the modern times. The way we read the Bible is not flat, where every verse is of equal value. As Christians, we read the scriptures with a hierarchy. We actually elevate the words of Jesus and say that Jesus is the filter by which we read everything else. We are a new covenant people. We have a new way of reading scripture. We have a way in which God has revealed himself in Jesus that now becomes the way we engage with the scriptures. We don't read the Bible flat. We read it with a hierarchy. Some passages actually outweigh others. Like when Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for them. So we're New Testament people. This is really interesting. Does anyone know what the word testament it means and where it comes from? Right? It's the, yeah, Nikki's like, you told me last night. <laughs> testament, right? Well, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Well, Testament is the Latin for covenant. And so when they were translating the Bible from Latin into English, they stuck with the more traditional common phrase, Latin, testament. But if our Bible translators had gone to the Greek, our Bibles would be divided up from Genesis to Malachi, Old Covenant. From Matthew to Revelation, New Covenant. And I think to myself, wouldn't that have solved some problems for us? <laughs> because now we're stuck with this word and we read the Bible and we're like, well, we have one Bible, two Testaments, part one, part two. But it's not part one, part two. It's old covenant, new covenant comes with Jesus. Christ is the one who fulfills the old covenant and starts a new covenant with us. Hebrews 8, 13, it says, when it says new, it makes the first obsolete. And if something is old and outdated, it is close to disappearing. The new covenant interprets for us the old. And it says that the laws of the old are obsolete, outdated, and done. 
The function of the law, Paul tells us in Galatians, was to be like a tutor or a custodian for people until the time of Jesus. And so the law, Paul writes, before faith came, we were guarded under the law, locked up until faith that would be coming would be revealed. So that the law became our custodian until Christ, so that we might be made righteous by faith. Essentially, Paul tells us that the law was our teacher, our, our tutor, and it taught us until Jesus came. But now Jesus is here. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We, the law is not binding to us any longer. We are not called to covenant mixing, old and new. We're not to hold Leviticus on par with Matthew. Rather, Jesus fulfills the law, makes it obsolete, and invites us into life with the Spirit. Now, this doesn't leave us with an ambiguous, anything-goes morality. That's unhelpful. It doesn't help a community grow. It's why Paul gets so frustrated with the church in Corinth, who just threw away all of their morality and said, well, grace is all that matters. We might draw from the Old Testament covenant ideas about things and behaviors that matter to God. For example, we would see thousands of verses about caring for those on the margins, those who are poor and powerless. And this would give us a good idea about the ways in which God would like us to spend our time and our money. Care for the poor. So remember what I said about how the Jewish people read the law and they saw that there was a need for a way or a path for connecting to God. They understood that even though they had the law, it was still necessary for them to discern how to live out the law that had been given to them. And because of this, the Israelites created fences around these laws so that they wouldn't accidentally take the Lord's name in vain or they wouldn't do something that was considered work on the Sabbath and accidentally sin. We might look at that today and say, well, that's legalism, but it was wisdom. It was a desire to live in a way that would connect them with God. But by the time of Jesus, these fences, these yokes of teaching had become burdensome to the people. And Jesus comes along and he says to the religious people, you missed the point. You get so caught up in keeping these laws that they have become a burden for you and for those that you teach. And the point isn't that it's a burden. The point is that we are supposed to connect with God and with our neighbor in a way that is good and life-giving. And so then Jesus shows us what it means to love God and love neighbor. He extends hospitality and inclusion to those on the margins. He gives people a new way of connecting and following God. And he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He invites people to give up the heavy yoke of the teaching of the law and to follow one much simpler but just as difficult law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And this, then, is the way, I believe, that we are called to relate to the law. Love your God. Love your neighbor. Use discernment to see the ways in which God's Spirit is asking us to do this and walk in connecting with God. And so, Pete Entz, final word. Becoming a Christian is not about earning points by obedience, but living faithfully as a Christian is a matter of ever-increasing alignment with the heart of God.
living faithfully as a Christian, is a matter of ever-increasing alignment with the heart of God. And so may we be people whose lives are ever-growing, being transformed into alignment with God and His heart, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.